Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Jerry Goldstein. Jerry is a criminal defense lawyer with uh, Goldstein and Orr. I could go on and on about all of your lawyer accolades and awards, but we'd be here all day. Recently inducted into the Criminal Defense Hall of Fame. Uh, Jerry, you're you're a personal uh, hero to me. I, I, I read about you in law school. I learned about you in law school. And then you randomly show up in a restaurant after I'd had way too many drinks about six years ago, and I thought it would be a good idea to go up and introduce myself, and you were uh, so gracious and so classy, and, and so was your wife, and I asked you to get a beer with me at some point, and I'm a, a nobody, you know, fifth-year lawyer, and you agreed and met me for a beer, uh, and I thought that was just the coolest thing. Um, the, well, I learned a lot from uh, my fellow lawyers and brothers and sisters in San Antonio. What a wonderful place uh, to have grown up and continued. Uh, my practice. Thank you so much, Justin. I agree. You know, the, the San Antonio Express, I, I read, uh, one of the writers was so gracious to call you a rich libertarian and druggy mouthpiece and that that was something you were very proud of. And I found that to be pretty funny when I was doing some research for this. That was Paul Thompson who had a front page column and he maligned me weekly. Uh, and probably was the best. I'm, I'm not a big fan of advertising, but I will tell you it was the best advertising any lawyer could ever get. <laughs> I mean, that's when the newspaper wrote a little different than it does now, it seems like. It it was, but so did the judges and lawyers. Fair enough. Okay, so I do this with everybody, and it's really exciting to do it with you. Uh, a, a sort of top 10. It, it, who knows how many it will be, but you have, you have grown up in San Antonio. You now have a house just blocks away from where you actually grew up in the King William area. You throw a fiesta party that is famous that I knew about immediately when I moved here. I mean, I saw a guy pushing a shopping cart full of booze down Alamo one day, and I said, where are you going? And he said he was going to restock your party during Fiesta. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it precedes you. Um, Thank you. I take that as the highest form of flattery, Justin. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's legendary. Uh, what are some of your favorite spots in San Antonio? Uh, well, uh, years ago, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, uh, we actually uh, opened and owned the original friendly spot, which yeah. was at the corner of Beauregard and Alamo, uh, which the Alcoholic Beverage Commission shut down after the number two then dinners uh, played and the crowd spilled out into the middle of the street. We own the Beauregard. So, uh, and my wife obviously has uh, nixed any more bars or restaurants, <laughs> but I still hang out at Latuna. Uh, I think it's a wonderful spot, although it's been encroached upon by all these new condos and apartment buildings. Uh, but, you know, I, I uh, grew my long teeth hanging out at the Esquire back in the old days. Uh, Wine 101 out in Holotus, I think, is a wonderful uh, spot. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I did my time crawling back home from the local uh, wineries and uh, uh, various alcohol uh, spots in the King William area where I'd grown up. 
Well, so uh, Jody Newman was the first guest on the Alamo Hour, who's now the friendly spot owner, and you and I went to Latuna. That was that was where we met for drinks that day. Um, what are some of the biggest practices you, or biggest changes you've seen in San Antonio in the last twenty or thirty years? Well, having grown up in the King William area before it knew it was historic, uh, it was a serious slum, and huh. it's become gentrified. But I think San Antonio is unique in the fact that it has. Uh, I think, uh, and I'm very proud of this, we have maintained our historic character. Uh, rather than tear down our buildings and building modern structures uh, like Dallas and Houston uh, in Texas, uh, we take pride in our historic uh, uh, city. And, you know, when I grew up, uh, I grew up three blocks from downtown. Uh, the river was my backyard. Mm -hmm. And back then it was like a jungle. I mean, it was it was uh, it was exciting for uh, a young kid to have that as his playground. I mean, uh, it, it not at all what you see now. Uh, and uh, uh, we we had uh, a wonderful uh, relationship with downtown San Antonio, having grown up there, uh, and uh, uh, that's. That hasn't changed. I mean, it's still, um, you know, there weren't the restaurants that we now have, uh, but uh, there weren't the dives. And when I was a little kid, I wouldn't have known a dive if I had seen one. But uh, I think San Antonio is proud of its history and for good reason. Uh, it is a historic place. I mean, people all over the country tell me, well, Goldstein, you don't sound like you're from Texas. And I would like to tell them, hey, look, if I had a an accent unique to San Antonio would be Hispanic. Yeah, fair. Uh, the, the truth is South Texas is different uh, from the rest of what people think is the stereotypical uh, uh, Texan. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, we're very lucky. Uh, we've now got uh, wonderful restaurants. Um, I love La Frite. Azuka is wonderful. La Focaccia is great. Uh, the, in the Blue Star, you have uh, uh, Stella and Halcyon Blisses down there. There's just one restaurant uh, battalion, one restaurant after another, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, I can walk to them. Uh, and more importantly, after imbibing in a little fruit of the wine, I can I can make my way home safely uh, without having to drive through traffic. Yeah, I think Azuka might be shut down. I drove by the other day, and is it looks uh, like it's gone. Well, no, it's still open. Uh, you just need to be there on the right. You know, the the COVID-19 has taken its toll on everything, yeah. uh, but they're still open. Okay. Uh, and I was there the other night and okay. they have a wonderful uh, owners uh, and uh, wonderful clientele. And Lafrit, uh, you know, I'm when I'm in town, I probably eat there twice a week. So good. Yeah. Uh, I liked uh, Azuka's run at the fish restaurant that didn't last very long. I thought that was great too. That was his son yeah. who, by the way, was a graduate of the uh, CIA, the uh, culinary Institute okay. in New York. Uh, and I understand he's now doing well uh, and has, uh, uh, he is a, a chef that I think it was called uh, starfish. Yeah, uh, that's it. And uh, he went uh to uh, California and then was in Dallas. Huh. And I think now is in another resort uh, and doing well for himself. And uh, his parents are delightful people uh, who I consider close friends like I do 
most of the restaurateurs down there. I, um, you know, I, I hang out uh, and uh, uh, they treat me very well. Uh, and I think uh, they treat everyone. Yeah, I had well. Stefan from Battalion on. I mean, I've, I've kind of gone through a lot of the restaurant tours. I think it's because I eat too much, but. You know, uh, me too. Yeah. Me too. Uh, one uh, thing that. But we can do well in the King William area. Yeah, no, I mean, that, and that's really happened in the last 10 years, really. It has. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, um, and I, I'm, I'm proud of what we have done. And uh, while uh, if you look at like the Pearl, you know, when I was in elementary school, Kit Goldsbury was a classmate of mine. We got, we got kicked out of the. Is that right? <laughs> uh, we got kicked out for putting the cherry bombs in the girls' toilets in the restrooms. And, uh, you know, when he, he first married Linda uh, Goldsbury, but uh, it was Linda Pace. When they got a divorce, I think he paid $100 million or something for uh, Pace, her interest in Pace Picante. Yeah. And I went around saying he was the dumbest kid in my <laughs> elementary class. And within a year, he sold it for a billion three or something. And there was only one dumb kid in my elementary school, and it was me. <laughs> what uh, school was that? Yeah. And, uh, pardon? What school? Uh, Travis Elementary. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, I went on to Mark Twain and then Jefferson, which, uh, you know, and I'm, I made great friends in Senate. You know, there, there are still high school friends that we see each other regularly. Uh, we still reunite uh, on a regular basis and reminisce about. I've been to jail in more than one country with some of my classmates. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, you know, if you look at what Goldsbury did with the Pearl, uh, and we can, you know, that that's a unique spot, I think, yeah. uh, in Texas and around the country. Uh, and uh, what a wonderful uh, tradition San Antonio takes pride in. Yeah, I mean, he's left a lasting legacy with the Pearl and everything that's going to grow up around it. Uh, no question, I, I want to apologize publicly to him for all the bad things I said. <laughs> one of the... Uh... One of the unique things about San Antonio's Fiesta, what's your favorite Fiesta event other than King William Parade? Well, I have to admit that the fair is my favorite, but, uh, you know, uh, as a kid, when we were, you know, I, I could walk down to old night and night and old San Antonio and we would take inner tubes and, uh, uh ride down the river, uh, for the parade and, and into La Vieta. Uh, and, uh, uh, we got in a lot of trouble yeah. as kids, and uh, I still find all that wonderful uh, and fascinating. Um, you know, it, San Antonio really is unique, like um, San Francisco and New Orleans, and Fiesta is like Mardi Gras. Yeah. You know, having you know, I I managed to uh, uh, I only got into two colleges that I wanted to Brown and Tulane, and I went to Providence, and it seemed dreary and cold in New Orleans. Uh, the French Quarter was wide open, and I felt very fortunate. My father claimed that he paid for a matriculation, not an education, and he's probably right. But San Antonio has that same kind of flair, unique food, unique music, uh, unique culture uh, that separates it from other places. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, you know, I, I wear my badge as a San Antonian proudly. So I say the same thing about – New Orleans, because every time I go there, which is similar to San Antonio, if I go out to a bar, 
I'm going to make a new friend. I mean, people are friendly. They're going to chat you up and you're just going to end up wherever the night takes you with new people that you meet. And San Antonio and New Orleans are the only cities that I have been to. I've run into that kind of friendliness and just kind of a joint party. And I think that's a, a, that kind of character, uh, builds a, a community's, uh, ability to be eclectic and to reunite. Uh, you know, when you think about what, what we, what we left after Katrina, you know, New Orleans is a more historic and unique place than Boston or New York or Philadelphia, uh, and just as old. And it has a, a troubled history with slave trade and other things, but, uh, we're going to get over all this and we're going to take pride in the unique cities that we have. Uh, and there's a reason why, you know, I have to admit that getting the, having the opportunity to spend four years in the French quarter and call it college uh, was a, a wonderful opportunity for a young kid from San Antonio. I was only uh, 17 when I got to college. How cool. Yeah. I mean, I have friends that went to college there and I always think, uh, yeah. you know, that's not fair. Um, it really uh, so you're a criminal defense lawyer, and I kind of want to walk you through sort of some of what I've learned and some of the stuff I find interesting. And I mean, there's sure. a there's a big lawyer in town named George Salinas who's an injury that I was doing this. He said, man, ask him if he'll ever meet me, me for a beer. I mean, there's that weird amount of enthusiasm for people that want to hear your story and get to know you. So let's talk about it. I mean, I know you started. Tell George I'm very flattered. Thank you. Well, I will. And, and then he'll say, when can we get a beer? And then I'll bug you <laughs> when you're back in town. But... Um, uh, first thing. So you, you started working as a lawyer with your dad's real estate firm, and then somehow you sort of transitioned into um, criminal defense, but sort of defending those that you just felt were wronged. Uh, talk to me about how that went about, went about and, and talk to me about Maury Maverick, who seemed to be such a big influence in your life and your development as a lawyer. Well, yes, he was. Uh, it was 1968 when I graduated uh, from law school. I'd gone to law school. Not necessarily. My dad was a lawyer. Uh, my mother was a uh, was one of the first uh, women stockbrokers in town. Uh, but she was her first job was being a doting Jewish mother, uh, and I was a spoiled only child. And I uh, uh, I got back. It, I met my bride. Uh, can I tell you th that story? Because I yes. think it's it, she deserves this tribute. I I had met her, and she was she had been at Trinity and she was somewhat disappointed. And a friend of ours at the time, Julia Armstrong, uh, uh, who was a friend of mine when I was in law school, I walked up to her at a party and slapped her on the back. She was about to go back to the Sorbonne uh, in Paris. She was a Brit. And uh, Julia slapped her on the back and said, you look like a girl likes to have a good time and brought her to my house. And I will love Julia uh, till the day I die. Uh, for that. And uh, that summer, she went back to England as she had planned to do. And I uh, met my parents at the airport. They were coming back from an Asian trip. And my dad told me I'd just gone to work for him. I was making 10 grand a year. Uh, and uh, uh, he thanked me for coming to pick him up. I said, well, actually, uh, I'm I'm about to to leave, dad. Uh, and let me let me turn that off. And I explained to him that uh, I was, uh, uh, I'd met a girl and I was heading to Europe. And he said, oh, really? And he said, uh, when do you plan to come back? And I said, well, uh, I'm not sure. And he said, well, you may not have a job when you get back. And I said, well, I thought about that. 
And he said, where'd you get the money? I said, well, remember my grandpapa left me the, the gold coins and that I had in that lockbox and he said, you'll, you'll know the time when you want to use it. And I'll be honest with you. It was probably uh, the best money I ever spent. Uh, and uh, uh, I cashed in the Norman Brock had a little coin shop on Houston street and he probably paid me fifth, you know, face value for the, probably got $1,500. And uh, uh, I left uh, and uh, met Chris and we traveled, uh, we hitchhiked and traveled through Europe and Morocco, North Africa cool. uh, for four months. Uh, I proposed to my wife in Morocco. Uh, she laughed at me and I thought, God, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, <laughs> she could have said something terrible. But uh, we got married in 1969. You know, it was the year of love. Uh, I married my bride. Uh, we had a Volkswagen bus. We had taken the seats out, put a Persian carpet down, uh, put little pillows in it, had a big peace symbol on the back of it, Ramsey Clark for president on the bumper. We got run out of more counties than we were invited back to. And uh, uh, I met Maury Maverick. Uh, well, I, I'd known him. He was a, a close friend of my family's, uh, but I met him as a lawyer. Uh, and Maury uh, was very special to me. Uh, that's a picture of me and Maury. Let me move over a little yeah. bit uh, back in those days. And uh, Maury was wonderful to me. Uh, we tried cases together. He took me to the Supreme Court. I met Supreme Court wow. justices. I would have lunch with Hugo Black, who had been in the U.S. Congress with Maury's, Maury Sr., Maury's father. Uh, uh, and by the way, he really did keep a Bible in one coat pocket and, uh, and the, the uh, first 10 amendments in the other. Huh. Uh, and uh, I got to meet Thurgood Marshall. Uh, wow. We argued cases in the Supreme Court. We argued wonderful cases in the Fifth Circuit. And uh, uh, we tried cases together, and he was an inspiration. He was my mentor and patron saint, uh, and I, I, I owe a de great deal, uh, a, a serious debt to him in terms of the practice of law. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I, I just I want to read this to you just because it's worth reminding everybody. We had a case, Piper versus uh, Adrian Spears had appointed me uh, to represent all the inmates in the Bear County Jail. Uh, who had a, uh, uh, a civil rights suit for the jail conditions. Uh, and by the way, um, after I convinced Judge Spears that the, it was unconstitutional, uh, he declared the jail unconstitutional and uh, uh, the Bear County built what was then the new jail, which is now, you know, being, uh, it, it's in a state of, uh, flux yeah. like once again. Uh, and uh, uh, by the way, as a, as a consequence, the county uh, refused to allow federal detainees to be kept there. And they had to go all the way to Bastrop. And the marshal service hated me because they'd have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go pick up prisoners. You know, it was an all, all day, all night yeah. affair. And it was all, it was my fault. But in the process, the uh, district attorney had, uh, had, uh, there was a gag order, but every seemed like every day he would make Paul Thompson's column or the front page bitching about my lawsuit. And I filed a motion to hold him in contempt for violating uh, the gag order. And uh, uh, this is the letter Maury wrote to me. And I'm going to read it to you because it's too hard uh, unless you, you're really young to read that. But he says, I'm not going to let you get off the hook 
with a mere telephone call, write your motion to a federal judge to have assistant DAs or whoever, uh, whomever held in contempt for talking to the press. You, you, you of all people are the last person in the world next to me who should file such a motion. What you should have done was file one like this. Comes Jerry G and moves the court for an order setting aside its gag order because the district attorney's office is violating same and because your undersigned attorney would also like to have the right of free speech. This would have put the judge on the spot. I mean, go in there with a straight face, not a smile, not a smirk, and speak up for free speech and mean it. It would have run the judge wild. Out of sight, out of mind is the rule of the establishment. I told your mother about this. Show this letter to her. You keep this letter. And the day I die, you read it. And you read it once a year for the rest of your life. So we'll count that as the one for 2021 in your honor. How cool. Will you uh, Uh, share that with me so I can post it? uh, Absolutely. How cool. What what just a great take on what you were trying to do and to kind of throw it in your face. And and, and Maury had a great sense of humor. He was harder on his friends and his pals than he was on his enemies. And for good reason. Uh, And he always made so much sense. You said he had an old Texas sense of righteous indignation and a keen sense of righteousness. What, 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 is, what does that mean to you? I mean, you're in a world where you better be righteous as a criminal defense lawyer, especially in the civil rights and the and our civil liberties context. But what did it mean to you in terms of Maury Maverick? What, how did he exemplify that? Well, and he called me out for this regularly in his articles in the newspaper. Uh, I, I admit that I fell prey to greed and avarice. Uh, and while I, I cling tightly to my sense of, of uh, conscience. Uh, he, he reminded me anytime I strayed. Uh, and that was a, a, a wonderful, uh, uh, rudder, uh, to help guide me through rough waters. Uh, and Maury, you know, Maury, uh, uh, he, he, he cared more about principle than he did profit. Uh, and uh, uh, it would be a, um, a wonderful goal if someday I was able to uh, uh, return to those roots. Uh, I, I cherish my time with Maury more than just about anything. And, and his direction kind of set you on this path because it sounds like you were doing collections work with your father, didn't want to do it, were burning out, and Maury kind of gave you an outlet that aligned with your own sort of righteousness and your own beliefs. Well, when I came back from uh, Europe with my bride in 1969, <clears throat> my dad, I was very lucky. Uh, I had an office. I had a secretary, and he never questioned what I wanted to do. And Maury gave me the chance to represent all my all my friends. Maury, he handled criminal cases. He did the Sporty Harvey case, which I noticed was in the newspaper the other day, uh, the first African-American uh, to be allowed to uh, box a quote, white person huh. in Texas. Uh, uh, and uh, <clears throat> Maury always told me, he said, you know, Goldstein, uh, I don't want to represent anyone whose crime I can't agree with. Uh, I didn't take that position. I, I believe that everyone was, was entitled to a vigorous uh, defense and that it wasn't my job to decide uh, who was uh, guilty and who was innocent. That's the, that my job is to put my client's best foot forward. And when two lawyers on both sides, and I have a lot of respect for the prosecutors. 
I've dealt with in our community. Uh, and uh, uh, if both sides put their best case on, uh, be a fact finder, a judge or a jury makes the decision. That's the way it's supposed to be. A lawyer is not supposed to short circuit uh, the system uh, and make the decision and they're preempt the, thereby preempt the, uh, the jury or the judge. Uh, Mario always told me, I love this. He, he always told me, you know, Goldstein practicing criminal law is a little bit like the old hen in the hen yard. Uh, she runs around, peck, 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 peck. And in the ground, every hundred pecks, she comes up with a kernel of corn. Uh, and uh, the other 99 pecks, she ends up with a beak full of shit. And he said, that's what crim practicing. And I think that's true. Criminal lawyers, uh, they're not going to win cases. The, in federal court, in criminal cases, uh, the government wins 95 to 97 percent. And this wow. just as I in state courts, you're going to you're going to lose cases a, a buddy of mine from New York uh, who passed away a few years ago. Michael Kennedy uh, came down. If you've been to our office at the uh, the top floors of the Tower Life Building, <clears throat> we have the walls plastered with all the cases we've won. And Kennedy looked around. And he said, you know, Goldstein, if you put up an article for every case you lost, you need three more buildings. Uh, and he's right. Uh, we're going to, but you do it because you get that, that kernel of corn, every hundred case, and it's worthwhile. And uh, uh, even when you don't, uh, making sure that someone has the sense that they, they, their lawyer uh, and the system work for them. I'm, I'm fed up with trashing our institutions. You know, you've, if you've ever listened to me, I'm the first one to criticize the department of what I call the department of just us and the federal judiciary and the state judiciary. Uh, and we've got a wonderful DA, but state DAs, I'm constantly on their ass and criticizing them. Uh, but, you know, I'm a part of that system and I'm proud of that system. And it's a wonderful system. It's the envy of the world. And uh, it's time we took pride in our institutions and quit undermining uh, the uh, institutions that separate us uh, from those totalitarian states around the world. Not preaching, but uh, Maury Maverick taught me that. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it, was, it was an important lesson uh, and one I've taken to heart. And, and what sort of struck me as I sort of started preparing for this interview is, is you're a big believer in the system, but you're also a big believer in holding the system accountable so that it's better. And I think those maybe are the kernels of, of corn you're talking about. And, and let's talk about sort of some of those kernels of corn you've done in which you fought the system and made it more accountable to, for normal people. I mean, one of the things I know about you from law school is the Fourth Amendment work that you have done, which it sounds like got you some bad press on occasions. But for example, there was the, you know, the telescope case that, that, that had to do with our expectation of privacy. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of what your role was in that and sort of how you were able to hold the system a little more accountable for normal people? Well, I think uh, our right of privacy is something that uh, the Supreme Court on occasion has pointed out that a citizen's privacy is something that is sacrosanct, that the Fourth Amendment, the concept of, of your right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, uh, is what sets us apart from uh, the totalitarian state. The first thing, uh, you know, if you think about the rise of the Third Reich, uh, you know, it, it didn't impose its will 
on an unwilling public. It rode into power in a groundswell of popularity on fear of outsiders, fear of people that were different, fear of foreigners, the same kind of things that you see today. And the 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 idea is if you want to if you want to cut the the individual's concept of freedom at its roots, go after their right of privacy, eavesdrop on their conversations. Uh, you know, and when you think about what what that that means, uh, it's it's critical to a free people uh, not to have the government uh, intruding into their community. When you think about uh, the the what was what was it that our founding fathers saw in the Fourth Amendment? They were revolting against King George's redcoats breaking down their front doors on writs of assistance and rummaging through their underwear drawers and their papers and effects. Uh, and uh, uh, today, uh, it, it's something that they couldn't have even conceived of. Electronic surveillance, digital mining uh, of data, digital data that, you know, in the you know, think about this. In, in recent years, the Supreme Court, one of the few unanimous cases on the Fourth Amendment was Riley versus California, where the Chief Justice uh, Roberts uh, wrote for a unanimous court. And he said, you know, uh, it was whether they, they could look into your cell phone. They, they have a right when they arrest you to read your journals, your whatever papers you have. But he said digital data is different. Uh, the cell phone, it may be just another electronic device, but it holds for every American uh, their, uh, the, the contents of their, their entire being. It, mm-hmm. it goes to the root of everything. It's more revealing than rummaging through your home, which was always sacrosanct uh, in colonial days. Uh, the man's home is his castle. Well, uh, the, these the digital data contains the privacies of your life. If anything, uh, we t- today, uh, we need greater protections uh, for those rights because there's a difference uh, uh, become between uh, our physical intrusion into our effects and our property and our persons and our houses. Uh, by, by eavesdropping on our, on our uh, electronic communications, uh, they intrude on, on the, the crossroads between your right of privacy, the freedom of, uh, to be free from uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, and your First Amendment rights of free expression, of free association. And uh, uh, it exposes something perhaps uh, more dear than your personal effects and your, your home. Uh, it exposes your communications, your thoughts. And that, uh, I think, was what the founding fathers would have held most dear had they known that that would have been at risk. And that tele- telescope and the intrusion into our, uh, into our homes through electronic means that now allow them to look through walls, not just, you know, there's that wonderful Warren Burnett uh, question too many. You know, uh, uh, how far can you see without your glasses? I don't know. I can see the moon. How far is that? Uh, you know, the, the real truth of the matter is that they're going into our inner sanctum and stealing our thoughts. And uh, uh, this is something that I think uh, everyone uh, should be wary of. And when we give that up, 
that's the first intrusion into a totalitarian government uh, that 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 wants uh, to capture uh, the uh, uh, souls and minds of its populace. You testified in Congress on the Patriot Act, and I think a lot of these issues you're talking about now are similar to what the concerns were with the Patriot Act. Are, are we are we in a sort of legal fight right now about the confines of the Fourth? in light of our electronic lives now, or have we lost that fight already? Sort of where do we stand on sort of the government's role in searching and seizing our private data? I think uh, the high watermark might've been Riley versus California and that California and the unanimous opinion written by the chief justice. Uh, and we're still having that fight. And uh, we don't know where Gorsuch uh, might end up, although he had some good opinions on the 10th circuit. Uh, we're not sure uh, where Kavanaugh is going to be. And Barrett is, you know, she had very few opinions on the Fourth Amendment. Uh, but I think it's a, con you know, if you want to talk about originalism, uh, uh, the, the founding fathers were, were very concerned about our, that, that concept of privacy. And it wasn't just physical intrusion and trespassing into our property. It was in it was going into our minds. You know, you, you talk about the uh, Patriot Act uh, 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 on September 12th, the day after 9-11, uh, the, uh, the, the federal agents uh, invaded the home of a, of, a phys of a physician, a Saudi physician who was uh, teaching at the UT Health Science Center, uh, Dr. Al-Badr Al-Hazmi. Uh, and uh, I got a call uh, early that morning. They, they came into his uh, home at 5 a.m. That's how quickly wow. they were looking for people. And they, they mistook his name and they found a receipt when he was on leave to Georgetown University, uh, when he was in Washington to the White House. Uh, it happened to be a hamburger joint in D.C., uh, but they obviously were moving very quickly. And he was held in, in communicado. He was wow. taken by military transport to ground zero uh, and detained there where he was physically assaulted uh, by the inmates who were outraged by what had happened. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it was 10 days. Even my friends in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I cherish some of their friendship, uh, no one would tell me where he was. And when I was finally taken, I'm, I, that those proceedings are still under seal and I'm not allowed to discuss what was what was said but I was taken in a in a Humvee uh, with a bunch of camo uh, clad uh, uh, military with with automatic weapons uh, to that site and I uh, and the Patriot Act passed uh, 99 to one the sole holdout was Senator Russ Feingold uh, who said, look, I'm not necessarily against it. It's just 346 pages, and I'd like to read it uh, before I, I vote on it. And they couldn't get copies of it out to everybody because the anthrax scare in the Capitol had kept the Senate and the House out of, out of their confines. And uh, the first hearing held on the Patriot Act was held in uh, the third week of October, a month after they passed wow. the Patriot Act. Uh, and I was a lead witness uh, on the con side, and the lead witness for the Patriot Act was one of its 
uh, one of the people given credit for writing the Patriot Act, the USA Patriot Act, uh, Via Den, who is an associate deputy attorney general of the United States. Uh, and I sent you a, a clip. Do you have that? I, well, yes, but not on here. I'm going to post it on our social media after this. Okay, yeah. well, he, he made a, I thought, a compelling speech where he talked about uh, the fact that uh, the Patriot Act preserved uh, the freedoms that the Statute of Liberty uh, stood a, as a testament to. Uh, and he talked about the fact uh, that it, at the inscription, at the base said, bring your poor, your huddle masses, not your brightest, not your smartest, not your more, your wealthiest, bring me your huddle masses. And when they gave me the opportunity to respond, uh, I explained uh, that, uh, you know, I, I said, Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator Feingold, by the way, was the chair of the Senate Judiciary mm -hmm. Committee. And I said, Mr. Chairman, uh, distinguished members of the committee, let me first respond uh, to the able and eloquent uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, who led off uh, the prior uh, panel uh, by saying that uh, perhaps we should reconsider the inscription on our Statute of Liberty. Perhaps it should read, now, bring me your poor, your huddle masses, and we'll jail them as illegal aliens, uh, eavesdrop on their conversations with their lawyers uh, and subject them to secret proceedings. Uh, and I still feel that way. I think the, uh, the Patriot Act, uh, it has met several sunsets uh, and it has transmogrified into something perhaps even more dangerous with the FISA court uh, 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 and other uh, secret proceedings where only the government gets to appear. Uh, I think uh, we need to understand that in times of strife, in times of trouble like that, those are when our constitutional rights are the most precious. Those are when we need to uh, have the willingness to stand up. Because uh, I think it's important, uh, uh, and I've said this more than once, uh, that each of us, particularly you and I, Justin, as lawyers, that we stand up, that we stand up in courtrooms, that we stand up in barrooms, that we stand up in classrooms, that, that we stand up uh, against uh, the kind of illegal and unconstitutional invasion of citizens' privacy whenever and wherever it rears its ugly head. Uh, because unless we do that, there, nobody's going to do that for us. Uh, and we're going to see our rights, uh, fleeting as they may seem right now, uh, evaporate. And that's when we need to worry about a government uh, that is more interested in greed and avarice uh, and the rights of things like corporations uh, than that of people uh, and the common individual uh, who make up our country uh, and our voting public. Uh, because uh, the courts, and it's an interesting thing in the past few, few weeks and months, the courts have been the one place that has stood firm, regardless of who appointed these judges, right. regardless of what we think of their political uh, philosophy. They've been the bulwark uh, of our constitutional rights and liberties. Uh, and uh, uh, it's important that we understand uh, and pay respect 
to those institutions because we're not always going to agree with every opinion. We're not always going to like every judge or every lawyer uh, that argues against us. Uh, but I'll tell you something, the collegiality among lawyers, our ability to disagree without being disagreeable is the one thing that may save us uh, from oblivion. Uh, and uh, uh, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, uh, we've come to the precipice, precipice of, uh, of oblivion. And we've looked over uh, and I hope we've scared ourselves. Uh, I, I hope so, too, because I have a very similar uh, feeling about what's going on right now. Uh, Jerry. And, and by the way, unless we stand up against injustice, wherever and wherever, uh, whenever it rears its ugly head, we're going to be sorry about that. Now, I'm, that's um, I'll quit my preaching. No, no. Uh, you kind of touched on it in an interview I saw today that you you've, I've never couldn't find anywhere you actually talked about it. This sort of radicalism or, you know your uh, work on behalf of people started a long time ago. I think you mentioned somewhere you were actually part of some of the freedom rides in the sixties um, to Mississippi. Did I hear that? Yep. I was in new Orleans in 1961. Uh, and during the next four years, uh, I caught the bug. I'll be honest with you. It, it took me a while. Law school. I, I went to law school cause I wanted to stay out of the draft and didn't want to have to go out and kill or be killed even though my dad was a lawyer, I even considered going to the Peace Corps. But I think law school provided for me an opportunity to see that there is an opportunity, even in our own individual modest way, to make a fucking difference in this world, excuse me. But I think it's critical. I think we've got to start giving a shit and making a difference. And I think, uh, you know, that, that was, that, that was a, my initial little steps. Uh, but uh, as we become older, uh, you know, I used to object to everything, you know, even my own client. I mean, it didn't matter. I would, I was protecting my record. Uh, now I'm, I wear a sincere blue suit. Uh, when I rise, actually people sometimes pay attention to me, uh, just because I'm not constantly on my feet. And I think, uh, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our profession. We owe it to our country, to our fellow mankind to actually try and make a difference. And if each of us can do it in our own small way, uh, and do it on a daily basis, uh, we're going to change this place and we're going to change it for the better. Jerry, what does the next generation of sort of activists look like to you? I mean, the the 60s doesn't happen again. You know, that sort of mentality and idealism is different now. What does it look like for you? What do you think the next round of activist lawyers looks like? And what do you think their fights are, you know, for the next you know, 20 years? In the past 50 years, I, I taught at the University of Texas law school for 15 years, which tells you they don't look at your transcripts uh, before they hire faculty. Uh, and uh, I've been teaching at St. Mary's for 27 years now. I love teaching. I love having the chance to pollinate the garden of these, the, the, the very fertile garden and minds of, of, of kids. And they're smarter. Uh, and uh, I think uh, they've got a conscience. And uh, the opportunity, I learn more from my kids in law school uh, than they learn from me. And I think any one of them will tell you that. Uh, and I think we've got a chance. I think we've got a chance if we can spend some of our time trying to plant the seeds uh, of freedom, the seeds of individuality, the seeds of protecting the least of us, because how we treat the least of us is how ultimately we can expect to be treated ourselves. And I think that's a wonderful lesson. 
And I'll be honest with you, I have a lot of faith in the kids that I see today. Uh, I have I have an ultimate uh, belief that that uh, uh, we're going to see things get better. Uh, and I, you know, uh, I I'm a pragmatist. Uh, I'm I'm usually on the far left. Uh, I'm probably on the far left of most of my Democratic friends. Uh, but I understand we need to compromise. Uh, we need to get moving. We need to move the ball and we need to move it forward. And that requires us all to com- compromise and give up uh, some of our uh, most precious thoughts and beliefs. Uh, not totally, but in order to move the ball in a direction that is good for mankind rather than retreating it uh, and trashing all of these institutions to allow an executive branch to, you know, Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, who argued uh, before when he was on the 10th Circuit, uh, argued three cases, one of which, uh, uh, you know, he's very, very bright, uh, you know, uh, went to Oxford uh, for a graduate degree. Uh, and uh, in that case, uh, he wrote, a, in his opinion, a better argument than I made. And he wrote a better argument than the U.S. attorney made on the other side in the 10th Circuit. Uh, and he seemed to like the argument he made for the U.S. attorney better than mine. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he he understands some of these issues. And he understands, for example, the the founding fathers concept of non-delegation, that the separation of powers means something. And that we can't allow the executive uh, to simply create uh, uh statutes uh, by using the uh, uh, different uh, federal agencies. Uh, the, the Code of Federal Regulations, there are over 300,000 uh, different regulations that have some semblance of a criminal uh, statute. We shouldn't wow. be allow the person who's going to prosecute cases to write the criminal statutes, that's a legislative function. And the judiciary ought to be there to separate uh, these functions. Uh, And we've seen a lot of encroachment, all of this deregulation. Well, I understand that bureaucracy can be a pain in the ass, uh, but I want regulation of our environment. Uh, You know, greed is not the only motivating factor uh, that we can have. Capitalism works But I like having fire departments. I like having police departments. I believe that everybody ought to have um, medical services uh, without cost. I think that's a fundamental right. And uh, whether you agree with that or not, I definitely agree, uh, believe that we shouldn't be having uh, federal agencies uh, dictating uh, what uh, our uh, lives uh, can and can't do and uh, with respect to the criminal law, but we ought to have them weighing in on uh, whether large corporations, who most of them have become multinational, uh, who only care about the bottom line, they don't have a conscience. And while Citizens United says that they have a right to free speech, which is all about you know money in, 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 in political uh, campaigns, uh, why does Braswell say they don't have a right to remain silent? If they have a right to speak, they ought to have a right to remain silent. And we ought to not be giving uh, these multinational corporations whose biggest concern is the bottom line to make a difference and write our regulation of things that, um, that, that affect all of us, like the environment, like medical, uh, the, like the medical profession. Uh, we can do with good, sane, uh, easy to follow regulations. They serve a useful purpose and we ought to cherish them. 
not destroy them. Yeah, sort of all the stuff I was reading, you've kind of got a history of surrounding yourself with people that, uh, you know, have a lot of similar thoughts like you in terms of this real activism on issues and holding the system accountable. And one thing I kept, you know, everybody knows you're associated with Hunter Thompson. And I was always a fan of, I've read all his books and his movies. And I thought, so, you know, he's just a quirky character, but preparing for this, I realized how much you looked up to him as a necessary force for good in holding the system accountable. And I don't think that's something people think about or associate with Hunter Thompson who don't know him personally like you did. So sort of outside the drugs and the, and the fear and loathing and the movies and the persona, what was he like from sort of the perspective that you knew him and his desire to actually hold, you know, the, the system accountable? Well, I like the picture. Uh, the, the, the good doctor, uh, by the way, I, he let me have a small, uh, part in, uh, fear and loathing, but, uh, wait, you were in the movie. Well, I, I, I was the pinstripe suit, which was sort of blurred out by their, uh, uh, rendition of, uh, a stoner, uh, in the, uh, uh, the casino scene where he's wearing the, <laughs> the green, uh, visor and a lot of love it. Uh, who played at my 65th birthday party as a, as a favor. Uh, is this true? Uh, yeah. Well, I remember a lot of love. It walks yeah. on as the drug dealer. I, you probably didn't. Recognize yeah. him. Uh, but Hunter had a keen sense of righteousness. And uh, the first case that we, uh, uh, that I represented him on uh, was uh, uh, a case where uh, he stood by and stood fast that it was an illegal search of his residence, uh, Owl Farm. And uh, uh, I remember uh, vividly standing on the courthouse steps uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, Pitkin County, uh, the courthouse steps in the Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen uh, and uh, complimenting him. Uh, and uh, uh, by the way, he, uh, he, he, uh, each time we won a case, he would allow me to, uh, uh, to write the, uh, the last chapter. It was a letter from me. And in it, I, I echoed what I said on the courthouse steps, that Hunter Thompson didn't have to. They would have let him uh, get a free ride in both of the cases that we tried. There. And in both cases, by the way, I got to write the last chapter in the book afterwards. Uh, and uh, Hunter uh, was a person of principle, and he stood up for principle not just his own, uh, but that of all uh, Americans. And he was willing to, uh, uh, I remember when they dismissed that case, the first case, uh, the front page of the paper uh, had a, uh, uh, a quote from him saying that the dismissal was a pure act of cowardice. And he instructed his lawyers, that was me, uh, to appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court at once. Uh, appeal the and, dismissal? Uh, uh, yeah, the dismissal. <laughs> Uh, he thought that they were cowardly uh, in doing that. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he was a person of principle. A woman uh, by the name of Lisa Lohman wrote to him from prison, uh, and she, uh, a, she had gone into her own apartment to retrieve her, her own personal items, a snowboard and a broken uh, DVD player. I think it was actually a, a, a cassette player uh, uh, that, uh, and the, the police were called 
and she fled with this guy that had helped her break in, a skinhead, who she had only met that day. And uh, he sped away. The police gave chase. He pushed her out of the car. She was arrested and was in handcuffs behind her back uh, in the police car when uh, uh, this driver uh, turned around and shot the police officer, an officer named Vanderjet, and killed him. And of course, like in Texas, they tried the survivor. So they tried her under a felony murder rule. But unlike Texas, it required no foreseeability. It was an arcane doctrine that if you engaged in a felony, which was breaking into what was now her boyfriend's apartment, even to retrieve your own property, uh, that's a felony. Uh, and uh, any result of that felony, if a if a crime was committed, including murder, uh, you were responsible under the felony murder rule. And she was doing life without parole. Uh, and Hunter uh, actually uh, uh, held a rally on the uh, the Colorado State Capitol steps. Uh, and uh, uh, this is Doug Brinkley, the yeah. presidential historian, uh, actually giving a very uh, warm and undeserved uh, introduction of me. And I got up and I talked about uh, uh, Hunter and how he was willing to stand up for people like that. And in the green room, before we went out, uh, a good close friend of Hunter's and because of that of mine, Warren Zevon had asked, uh, what would I like to hear him play? And I said, you know, Warren, I've always wanted to walk into a courtroom uh, and have you play lawyers, guns and money. Uh, this little Jewish lawyer would would take pride in that. He said, well, I'll play it for you. So as a tribute uh, after my uh, uh, lame speech, uh, Warren came off with a guitar and sang the refrain of lawyers, guns and money. Uh, and Hunter was the reason for that. Uh, Hunter's principle uh, went well beyond what you read about uh, in his storied uh, drug use and uh, uh, his his prose. Uh, he he tortured over every word. Uh, he would make uh, you know I I'd get to go out to Al Farm uh, where he lived uh, and you know it'd be George Plimpton uh, you know the uh, author of Paperline. We would talk about sports or it'd be a nude female motorcycle gang. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, who, uh, you know, who, who uh, had come uh, to, to visit the good doctor. And it was always exciting. But underneath it all was a principal belief uh, in liberty, a principal belief in freedom, and a, a keen understanding of, uh, of American history and politics. Uh, a, one of my wife's best friends, uh, is married and a good friend of ours, Lionel Barber, who was the uh, the uh, editor of the Financial Times until he retired uh, recently. And the two of them would sit there and argue about American history. Mm. Uh, Lionel was uh, an Americanophile. He okay. loved, uh, uh, you know, he would he would talk about impeachment being the one thing in De Tocqueville's second volume that he said was a weakness, the Achilles heel of American body politic. Huh. And uh, Hunter, it was worth it. It was worth every minute I spent out there and got in trouble with my wonderful bride uh, of 51 years. Uh, <laughs> he was he was quite he was quite a character. And it wasn't all business. I don't know if you've got that letter handy when you sent him uh, you sent him a proposal of the crime plan from Clinton's Clinton's administration, and he sent you a um, you know funny response. 
Well, uh, I don't have it handy, but <laughs> his response was in his usual scribe, uh, Goldstein, you lint-headed liberal Jew. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're just like all your friends. You know, you undermine, uh, you know, all you, all you care about is liberal politics. Uh, you know, because I, in it, uh, the White House had asked me to comment. Uh, it was uh, President Clinton had asked me to comment on their crime bill, which, interestingly enough, has become an issue. Yeah. was an issue in the recent uh, uh, election. Uh, and I said, oh, what do you think about this? And, you know, scribbled across the top of the, you know, he had a he had White House stationery, naturally, and scribbled across <laughs> the top of it. Think, think, you lint-headed liberal Jew, you know, and it was, it he he had a good way, like Maury did, of putting you in your place. You know, I was proud that the White House had sent me a personal letter, you know, probably with a stamp, but it looked like it was signed by President Clinton. Uh, Hunter, by the way, you know, he would he would exchange faxes with uh, with presidents, with Nixon. Huh. You know, he he uh, and, you know, it was uh, uh, Kissinger, Kissinger. And he had a ongoing uh, 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 communication. And uh, uh, Doug Brinkley uh, has compiled a number of, of books of his correspondence. They're worth reading. How does Doug Brinkley uh, and, fit into this? Because he's been brought up in multiple interviews. I mean, he he was the editor of most of Hunter's last books. Ah, uh, okay. And uh, you know, you would sit in Hunter's. Uh, uh, it was called the kitchen, and Hunter would sit at his typewriter, where unfortunately uh, he spent his, you know, last breath. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Hunter would have you read passages from books you know, Hell's Angels, you know, which was 60 years old at the yeah. time. And he would correct you with when you didn't pause for a comma. Uh, he he really did. He was a wordsmith and he meant every word that he wrote. Did he have a, obviously, I'm sure the parties and things like that, but I heard he set off bombs and shot at neighbors. Were you there for any of that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. There's a <laughs> there's a photograph of, of uh, him shooting a uh a large poster of Ronald Reagan in his cowboy with his six shooters and Hunter would, would uh, shoot a shotgun and he often had an empty uh, propane canister behind it, holding it up. And one of them had just enough propane in it to send the propane can against the, the embankment. And it came flying over all of our heads. Oh, and I've got a picture that Deborah, his trusty assistant, uh, took of all of us and Hunter, all of us flattening on our backs as the propane canister came <laughs> flying over our heads. Uh, yeah, it was it was more than in interesting. Were uh, were y'all's homes close? No, it was. Uh, and I I always uh, credit the sheriff who always said that I was one of the best drunk drivers he ever rode with. Uh, <laughs> it, it was about a uh, Al Farm is out in Woody Creek which is a 20, 30 minute drive at the speed limit, obeying all, all signs uh, from downtown Aspen. We live right in the middle of, uh, of the community back behind the courthouse. And Aspen still is a refuge for a lot of aging hippies like me. It's got a lot of greed heads and it's opulent. And during the holiday season, which we just went through, it's got a lot of tinsel and a lot of glitter. Uh, but you know, 
uh, when they wanted to try and figure out how to get a traffic lane into Aspen, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the city council uh, went to the head of Disney uh, to see if they could have a, biz, a, a, a people mover that would get people in, right. w- which would re- reduce the traffic jam. And Hunter put posters up everywhere, uh, which was a water tower uh, uh, with Mickey Mouse Club ears on the Aspen water tower. Uh, sort of like when they were proposing to put a, uh, a sewage plant above Woody Creek, above his home. And all of us had uh, bumper stickers that Hunter had made that said, there's some, there is some shit we won't eat. Uh, so he, he was always active. You know, they say all politics are local. And Hunter believed that and meant that. And, and stayed, stayed active until he died? Active until the, the very moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really can't even get started on some of the other cases you've worked on. But, I mean, you, you represented Nichols and the Oklahoma City bombing. You represented Obergon. Actually, actually uh, the lawyer that represented him was Michael Tiger. But I had been upset because some very famous, well-known lawyers that were friends of mine had said they wouldn't represent a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And my first meeting when I was president of the National Association was in 1995. And we were in New York City. There was a lot of press. And I had Judy Clark, who represented the Unabomber and uh, uh, the mother you know, who famously uh, drowned her children mm-hmm. in her car. Uh, and what a marvelous stand-up lawyer she was and still is. Uh, and I, I tried to shame my fellow lawyers uh, by saying, what would you do uh, if, uh, if uh, you got a call and they asked you to represent uh, the uh, McVeigh at that time? And uh, uh, she said, she explained, and about five minutes later, I get a call from the Federal Judicial Council in DC. And they pull on my jacket and they say, you've got a call from, uh, he says he's the chair of the Federal Judiciary Committee. And uh, I said, sure, sure. And I, I thought it was my lawyer friend pulling my leg. And finally he came back and said, Judge Higginbotham, who was on the Fifth Circuit, uh, retired now, but a wonderful, uh, very conservative, but a very bright judge. He's on the phone and uh, he, uh, he said, Goldstein. Oh, and by the way, uh, Jerry Lefcourt, wonderful lawyer from New York that represented Abby Hoffman in the Chicago 7, and I got to help Kunstler uh, represent them in the Seventh Circuit. But uh, we were on uh, uh, a PBS TV show, and the uh, interviewer said, well, what would y'all do? And we both said, we hope we would do this the right thing. And Higginbotham says, Judge Russell from uh, Denver, we picked up a second suspect. Mm. Okay. Nichols. And he said, the judge wants to know if you and left court meant what y'all said. My knees start buckling. And I'm thinking, fuck man, does this mean I'm going to have to represent the, the bomber of the, you know, uh, McVeigh building yeah. in, uh, in, uh, in Oklahoma city. And, uh, uh, and I was told left court about this the next day. And Levcourt's first response at lunch to me was, that mean we have to move to Canada again? Anyway, Higginbotham said, no, Goldstein, you're the president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. We just want your endorsement of Michael Tiger because 
we've never had the the opportunity to appoint a lawyer outside of uh, the district uh, to represent somebody in a prominent case like this. And he knew Tiger and I were friends. And, you know, Tiger was one of the lawyers in the Chicago 7 trial. And uh, he knew we were both on the faculty at UT at the time. Uh, and I said, sure, sure, he'll be great. Uh, and uh, Why was you know, the Fifth Circuit appointing a counsel for a guy? It, it wasn't the Fifth Circuit. It was the Judicial Council of oh, okay. the United States Courts okay. uh, in D.C. But Higginbotham's and just on were, that council? They were assisting Judge Russell in Denver to appoint Tiger, uh, who at the time uh, was teaching at UT. Uh, and uh, uh, Tiger, did a, Tiger did a marvelous job. And if you remember, uh, in Nichols, his last, I don't know if you've ever read this, but his closing argument, at the close of it, he says to the jury uh, uh, in Denver, uh, he said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, I'm finished now. And I will go home tonight. And my young daughter, my little daughter will ask me, what did you do today, daddy? And I will tell her I tried to save the life of one of God's children. What will you, ladies and gentlemen, tell your children hmm. when you go home tonight? Uh, and if you remember, they recommended the judge and the judge spared Nichols' life. He's and in he that was, crazy Supermax thing up in Colorado now, isn't he? Yes. Uh, and by the way, it is a pretty amazing place. I represent people and I've been there. Uh, and it's, he is still there, but he's still alive. And when uh, you say but, amazing, I mean, there's a lot of people that, that say it's kind of cruel and unusual the way they isolate everybody there. And It is. You are 23 hours in lockdown, solitary. You're allowed out into a day room with no one else for one hour every day. Your food is mechanically moved into your cell and mechanically removed. When you meet with someone, you are in a long hallway. They're at one end of it and you're at the other. And there are shackles that go into metal slots that come along the walls. And with all the noise that a shackle is when they come to see you and they remain shackled, feet into one slot, arms into another with guards at either side. Has nobody taken that up as a cruel and unusual punishment? Uh, if they have, uh, it has been uh, without much notice. I mean, how do people uh, not lose their minds? Uh, well, some of them lost them long before because right. we don't have mental health. Uh, let's face it. Uh, our mental health uh, facility these days is our prison system. Yeah, Our jails and prisons are filled uh, with those uh, who... Uh, uh, actually need uh, and deserve medical treatment, uh, not uh, uh, prison punishment. I agree with you. Um, you know, we talked about this before. You, you talked about Stanley versus NISD. Um, you did the free speech obscenity case with the Fiesta Theater here in San Antonio, sort of. Um, those are San Antonio related. Talk to us a little bit about the the Deep Throat case. And I mean, it's a porn theater, but, you know, it's a well, San Antonio. It's a fascinating. By the way, they just did a French uh, full-length uh, cartoon. Uh, it's not a very flattering cartoon to me, but it actually even has my, we went to the Supreme Court uh, over my attorney's fees. It was the first case uh, to actually uh, uh, place the Supreme Court stamp of permature on the Attorney's Fees Awards Act, huh. Section 1983. 
and uh, Richard Dexter, uh, Maury Maverick. Uh, by the way, I understand you've got a son named Maverick. I've got a what? Do you have a son named Maverick? No, Lincoln. Well, even better. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and more prestigious. But Lincoln uh, Dexter, since you're fixing to go into Dexter, his middle well, name is Dexter. Richard Dexter, it's interesting. <laughs> Richard Dexter went to my high school uh, long after I did, uh, but he was a high school dropout. And he goes to the Texas Employment Commission, at the time the TEC, and uh, they he, he has no skills, but he used to show the dirty movies that they would show to uh, discourage uh, kids from having unprotected sex and uh, you know, getting venereal disease. Uh, uh, and so he, the one thing he could do is run a 60 millimeter projector. So they sent him to the Fiesta theater, uh, in downtown San Antonio. That was how he got the job. And for the next three nights, he's busted for showing the movie deep throat. And in those days they prosecuted the, uh, the projectionist, huh. uh, and, uh, the district attorney at the time uh, thought a class two misdemeanor for obscenity wasn't going to help him in the upcoming election. So he uh, had the uh, Richard Dexter indicted for the use of a criminal instrument uh, and uh, declaring the uh, use of a 16 millimeter projector uh, as the use of a criminal instrument, specially designed uh, and utilized for the commission of a crime. Uh, and we filed a civil rights suit, Maury and I, and a young lawyer at the time, Leonard Schwartz. And uh, uh, we, in those days, you got you went to a three-judge federal court uh, if either the statute uh, was, was unconstitutional or its use was unconstitutional. And we, uh, uh, we were before a three-judge panel. Judge Spears was on it. Uh, and Judge Singleton, who was the chief judge at the time, uh, out of the Southern District from Houston. And I still remember at the argument, uh, the uh, Judge Singleton looked at the young prosecutor and said, are you telling me that if I wrote a dirty word with this pencil that uh, I could be charged with a felony? And the prosecutor said, well, I, I think so. And he threw the pencil at this young prosecutor. Prosecutor ducked. It almost hit me right between the eyes. Uh, but when we, uh, uh, when we got to the Supreme Court, uh, by that time, we won both that case uh, and the uh, uh, my attorney's fees. Uh, and the uh, the French uh, film company, they did this like two or three years ago. Uh, and they have a cartoon and it's and they have me driving up in my Volkswagen bus that I told you about. And they have me driving up to the front of the Supreme Court, all in car cartoon characters. Uh, and uh, they just came out with a uh, uh, a version with English subtitles, and I'll send that to you as well. Awesome, yeah, it's pretty hilarious. Uh, how many? How many and cases? By the way, the, the the county judge at one point, I said, "Judge, you can't see the movie from where you are. How are you going to judge its its obscenity?" And he said, "I don't." In front of the jury, he said, "I don't need to watch your dirty movie, Goldstein." <laughs> uh, so you know, it was a different time in a different place. Yeah. How many? How many times have you argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, I've argued actually four. Oh, that's, I mean, I, you're the only person in San Antonio I know that's ever argued in front of the Supreme Court. I mean, that's such a small group you know, of people. Well, actually, uh, Lamont Jefferson has argued and probably one more than me. Okay. But uh, I, I will tell you this, that it's, it's, it's a thrill. Uh, you know, I, I've got each of the three cases that we won uh, with the judge's signature uh, on it. 
And I will tell you that for those that haven't been to the Supreme Court, particularly as a lawyer standing before them, it's such an intimate environment. I mean, you can reach out and touch them almost. Wow. Uh, you know, they can see the sweat on your brow when they ask you a tough question. And uh, it's, a, it's a very special uh, experience, one that I cherish. Um, what advice do you have for young lawyers that are going to listen to this just because they've heard the stories of Jerry Goldstein? I, they, they will teach the teacher something uh, soon, I think. My only advice is two things. Give a shit, make a difference. Uh, and uh, all of us have the opportunity to do that. And often in a day-to-day uh, environment, in courtrooms across this country, it's, it's, it's not the big cases that make a difference. It's You make a difference for every one of your clients. And every one of your clients stand as a testament uh, to what uh, uh, lawyers uh, who whose large footsteps I've tried to tread in, like Maury Maverick, yeah. like Warren Burnett, like Michael Tiger, uh, lawyers who who uh, are champions of justice. Uh, you and your practice, me and mine, we can make a difference every day. And when we make a difference in each of our clients' lives, we make a difference for the whole uh, of our communities, for the whole uh, of of our uh, country. And uh, uh, we act in the best tradition of our profession. Jerry, you've been so gracious, and I'm so thankful you agreed to do this. Um, I hope you'll let me get a drink with you when you're back in San Antonio. I always end these with my top three wish list guests, but you're a San Antonio, and who, who are some people you think I should I should try to get on my show? You know, maybe people that just have interesting stories that people haven't had a chance to hear. Well, there are some wonderful uh, folks in San Antonio. Phil Harberger, uh, for yeah. one, who was the chief judge of our Court of Appeals. And we've got, by the way, we have a Court of Appeals made up of Hispanic women, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, some of whom I consider some of my closest friends. We Think of this. A, a feminist appellate court, uh, and it's remained that way. And the few uh, men who have who have applied that trade are not uh, uh, memorable. Yeah. Uh, they are strident <laughs> and they're cool, and they they make a difference. So Beth Watkins uh, is going to be on the show. She's coming up. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and you know we've we've got wonderful. And I'll tell you another one. Uh, and we can take pride. Geronimo Gutierrez, uh, <laughs> uh, a case that took. Uh, Decades. We went to the Supreme Court twice. Uh, uh, a a person with a diminished mental capacity that the Court of Criminal Appeals continued to reaffirm his death sentence. The Court of Criminal Appeals finally uh, has saved his life, and Geronimo will ride again. And it's because of an enlightened uh, district attorney in San Antonio, Joe Gonzalez, uh, who had the guts uh, to stand up and say that. Uh, we, we are better uh, than uh, the idea that we have a system so perfect that we, we can decide who shall live and who shall die among us uh, is wrong. Uh, and I would love to hear him on your show. Uh, he, uh, he is uh, a, a giant among little people in our profession, and we're very fortunate to have him as our district attorney. No, oh, that's a great suggestion. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much. I, I, I can't wait to catch up. I'm going to bring George Salinas so we can have a beer with you. Um, yeah. And stay safe and tell your wife thank you again for being so nice to me whenever 
She didn't have to be. <laughs> She's nice to everybody. And she put up with me for 51 years and has been speaking to me for 48. Uh, so thank you, Justin. <laughs> totally it's been fair. A All right, Jerry. Happy New Year. Happy Talk New to you Year soon. You, All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.